0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth's Childhood History and Critique Series. I'm Martin Woodside, and today we're talking to Mara Gubar, Associate Professor of Literature at MIT, and Sean Avey, Associate Professor in the Humanities Department of New York City College of Technology, about child performers on the 19th century stage and beyond. Something obviously that drew me, both of your uh, work, was the way that you took on this idea of child innocence and in the preconceptions about child innocence um, in the 19th century and suggested that by looking at the theater and children in the theater, we could re-examine some of those ideas. And I'd love to hear um, either of you or both of you actually talk about that a little bit in your own work. Shauna, maybe you could uh, get us started there.
1: Okay. uh, Innocence is less the focus of my work than competence. And the theater was not an accident. The theater is where I come from. Uh, my background is as a theater practitioner, then turned theater scholar. Um, so, so the theater was where, my starting point. And I thought, uh, wanted to look at the children as workers. I think I was so struck by the fact um, that theater scholars have dismissed the the work of child actors, just like you know, just like today, people dismiss the work of child actors and assume they were just there as a freak, they were there as something. And I, I think this is what where Mara and my work um, overlaps, is the, the very, very clear um, evidence that child actors in the 19th century were respected for their competence as as well as what other pills they have.
2: I would agree with Shauna. I think when I started, and I'm sure when she started as well, there was really almost nothing out there to begin with about child actors in the 19th century. Um, and what there was, as she just indicated, suggested the child was a sort of mute, talentless, voiceless victim. Um, and I think, so I totally agree. I think both of us were really interested in sort of Recovering the ways in which children, you know, had all kinds of competence, competencies that enabled them to, to to be successful performers, or in some cases unsuccessful performers. So not all of them were competent. Um, so I think that's true.
0: Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> you, you talk about uh, competence, and it seems it seems to be almost the flip side of innocence in some ways. When I was reading. Your your work on the Marsh Troop, uh, and you talked about competence, that, that really came to mind and it seemed like there was something threatening about that idea of competence to a lot of people.
1: You mean then or now? Then. I think to some... I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, maybe later in the century, I think it was threatening, but they're very early, right? They started in 1855, and I think at that point, most people saw children as workers, right? Certainly most children worked, and one of my main arguments is that the children, the rushes were seen as just like any other workers um, by much of their public, uh, because in, in the United States, you know, in New York, they didn't argue, the first child protection law was not, was a quarter century later, so an entire generation for children later. Um, so I think that there wasn't too much of a threat at this point. I think certainly later on there was, um, but if anything, they were just professional threats. You know, they were performing the same plays right next door to another acting troupe who was playing those plays, and so they were professional competition.
2: I do think I think one thing that's interesting to me is the way in which when we started, we were so concerned with suggesting that children were not totally incompetent, right? And I think the danger is to flip and to say, um, you know, it's too simple, I think, to sort of flip it around and suggest, well, no, children were not, you know. I mean, I feel like there's a way in which we have to sort of think about the ways in which children may be a special case as laborers on the stage, um, as well as the ways in which they're just like adult actors. In other words, I think we don't want to flip from victim to super-competent, autonomous
1: agent. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Um, Because that's why I think the mid-19th century is such a fascinating period, because that's when it's all shifting. So on one hand, the children are acting as workers. On the other hand, a lot of their appeal has to do with that fascination with the new perfect helpless children and certainly some of the characters they're playing were the epitome of those idealized romantic ones. so that, that's, that's the appeal. I mean, the actors are always playing two faces at the same time. And a lot of audience saw professional competent actors and a lot of audience saw just perfect little angels.
0: The child performer is a kind of lens that we can use to, to, to look at childhood in general. Is that is that correct?
1: Yes. Go ahead, Laura.
2: I guess I could say I think that it's really true that the way childhood was represented on the stage can tell us a lot about how people were thinking about childhood. And I do think there is a difference in the sense that I kind of feel like that there's a difference in how I think A big point that I'm trying to make in my work is that the ideology of innocence was much slower to spread than we generally assume. And I look to theater as a great place where we can see that that that's a great place to look as an example of how slow and uneven and incomplete the adoption of the ideology of
1: innocence really was. Yes, I agree absolutely, Mara. I think that it's one of the reasons that the ideology of childhood seems so unnatural to me is that it doesn't function the way that natural phenomena function. You know, if you look at what at what moment does the sunset happen? You know, you're watching the sunset change. It happens gradually. You're watching, you know, a child grow. It happens gradually. Uh, that everything in nat- nature happens gradually. And, of course, this was happening in bits and starts, in little eddies, you know, some places faster, some... It, it, I think it took really a century or several centuries before it really, it, I was going to say absolute, but of course it's never become absolute, right? The ideology of children has always had holes, and I think that a, a lot of people have pointed that out. Right, and Robin Bernstein points out it never involved, it never enveloped um, African American children. Jared Diamonds pointed out it never involved children in in other, you know, um, global south, third world countries. It's never involved the poor, you know, it's never been an absolute thing. It's always been creeping along.
2: I think the interesting thing is that there was a huge gap right, between the abstract concept of the child and the innocent child and the lived reality of so many different kinds of children, um, as Shauna was just pointing out. And I think, so maybe actually the best way to put sort of the differences maybe between our, our work would be to say that when I look at a group like the Marshes, I feel like we see... We see that confusion, that paradox, that gap, that juncture in all the discourse that's circulating around child performers in the 19th century, and we see that as scholars, and I think it was also apparent to the people who were seeing them on stage, or at least to some of the people, um, that there was a sense that, they, that they, they did and they did not work with this sort of image of the innocent child, child actors.
1: Um, one of the reasons I think the Marsh troop was such a great case study is you have different people within it. And with, with Mary Marsh, the little girl who died, her, the ideology swirling around her really bought into or celebrated or, or took advantage of. That whole ideology of innocent childhood, even into her burial, into her grave site, you know, into the naming on the grave, that it, it just completely carried through that innocent thing and, and obscured her identity as a worker entirely. Whereas when you look at another member of the truth, like um, this woman, Louise Arnott, she's a model of a craft apprenticeship exactly like you had for hundreds of years, you know, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, of a child who's taken on, who's trained in a craft, who then seamlessly practices that craft as an adult. So you have both things going on, and I think it's really emblematic of what's happening in the wider society at the time, is that a lot of contradictory things are are happening at the same time.
0: That comes across really well, I think, um, when you're discussing how the marsh is set up as a sort of... Almost too good to be true case study, um, with, with different members representing different kinds of, or different ideals of childhood in a way. Um, and then we have the, the gaps that Mara's talking about. And so when I'm putting that together, I'm wondering what do we have to be conscious of in terms of limits when we're thinking of, of childhood on the stage or child performers? How much, how much can't we see? What are we missing if, we, if we we're going to make sort of broader generalizations about childhood during these times looking at these performers?
2: Well, I- a general problem that theater is an ephemeral art right so at some level all all of all of our interpretations of what might have appealed to audiences about these children is always going to be a guess, right a, an informed guest a guest that's informed by our you know scholarly efforts to track down every little single last bit of information that we can possibly lay our hands on we're never gonna have been there in the theater to actually have a true sense of like the whole complexity of the situation. So I do think it's it's really something that it's hard for academics to do, to admit that there's lots of stuff we'll never know and we'll never be certain and that we're engaging in a kind of interpretive effort to imagine like what the appeal of these children might have been and how competent they were and all these kinds of things that we're so interested in, at a certain level, we can never really know. So I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to have a kind of epistemic humility that's really hard for, I don't know, me and everyone, I feel like academics in general to kind of hang on to that epistemic
1: humility. We're used to that in theater history because our our entire subject of study does not exist. So um, we're always working from fragments trying to, I mean, create something or create some idea of it. You know, we study architecture, remains, we study props, we study scripts, but all of these things are just the pieces of what went together to create that. So we are sort of used to that. Um, but I was going to say in childhood studies is the gap that everybody in childhood studies faces is the ch- child's voice. Um, I I searched Everywhere I could possibly find, I still pray at night somewhere there will be a case that will open up with a letter from some marsh child out of the, you know, dozens who worked there, or hundreds over the years. Um, but we, we have, in my case study, I have no direct voice of any child. I try to, you know, guess what they're, uh, from their actions when they could exercise some agency. I try to work backwards in that, but I have no direct voice and, and that's the problem we have in all of children's studies. And I, I've never heard of any record of a Viennese child, child speaking or or even the pinafore companies that Mara's written about so so with fascinatingly. Um, we just don't have the children's voices and and that's the biggest gap. That's the biggest gap. Everything that I know about the Marsh children was handed to me by an adult. So
2: I would just say, you know, I think I think the truth is, even if we did discover, or suppose you did discover a letter from one of the Marsh children saying, "Gosh, I love being in the Marsh Troop; it's the <laughs> greatest thing ever." That wouldn't settle anything. I think. So I think the fantasy of like accessing the child's voice is, it, 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 even if we had that stuff, we would still be asking the same questions. Was the letter coerced? Did the child have to write the letter, right? Is the child just parroting back? What, you know? I mean, so I guess there's a way in which, yes, I feel the same, like, longing and desire. I did actually discover one, actually, I shouldn't take credit for it. Peter Downs discovered some letters from child pinafore people, um, children writing back to their families. But I feel like they don't answer the question. They they don't suddenly magically solve the problem, right? Um, And I also feel like, Believing, and and I'm certainly not saying that Shauna believes this, but I think believing that, you know, there are these things out there that we can never find stops us from looking for those things. And I know Shauna hasn't been stopped and I haven't been stopped, but I just want to be cautious about the rhetoric of, you know, we just don't have those things. I, I think those things are very rare. They're very hard to find. And even when we find them, they don't really, you know, decisively
1: answer any questions.
2: Yes.
1: By a letter, I meant an entire set of complete diaries to take recorded from every, every uh, you know, freely from every act that ever worked with them, but oh, hey, gosh, you're absolutely right. We, we never really can capture that.
2: The, There's one other thing I would like to say, though, about the theater studies thing, and I think it's certainly true that theater studies people have been way ahead of, like, having that kind of epistemic humility I was talking about and acknowledging the limits of our knowledge, I will say, though, I have not noticed I, – I guess I was thinking rhetorically that it doesn't always come all the way through. Like, people will say as a proviso, you know, I'm going to be really cautious. But then sometimes the rhetoric in which findings are announced has a kind of, and surely this proves this, and certainly we can tell this, even though they've had that initial – so I guess what I'm saying is meant to apply to theater studies as well as other disciplines, that – like we have to watch our rhetoric, I guess, as as scholars, and I certainly include myself in this as well. As I'm not like criticizing other people, I'm I'm thinking aloud as to the challenges of remaining humble. If that makes sense. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. I think, as Sean has kind of pointed out, I think if anything, in childhood studies, people have been maybe overly humble because they're so afraid. <laughs> they're so they've they've they've, they've so. Um, immerse themselves in that, in that idea that they'll never find the child's voice. It's almost become a kind of fetish.
2: I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's certainly. It very much at the start of my career when I was working on *Artful Dodgers*. I wanted that book to be about actual children, not just like the theme of the child as a collaborator, right? But actual children who collaborated with adults in various ways. And the pushback I got because that was at the height of the Rose Jacqueline Rose you know, we can't hear the child's voice, and it's impossible, and don't even try, was so negative that all that ended up getting cut out, you know, because I felt you couldn't say anything, you know, and I had to twist myself up into knots to talk about actual child actors. So I definitely think you're right that there that, that it, so there must be some way of thinking of it as a kind of a balancing act that we have to do somehow.
0: hmm I wonder if you could each talk a little bit about um... – Class and gender, because they seem to loom large in both of uh, uh, both of your work, from what I've read. And gender, especially in your Shauna. And then I'm thinking of audience um, and class. And you talk a little bit about this, Mara, and also about we we spoke about this about the sort of um, Grand Duke's Opera House that you talk about. That sort of you know youth centric you know culture of the Newsboys putting on their theater. I just going
1: to talk about the audience. If you you might of because one of a, a, one of the big Hallmark books in theater history is highbrow, lowbrow, talking about how just at the moment of history, highbrow and lowbrow get separated. That in the early part of the 19th century, you know, everybody went to the theater together, everybody saw opera, everybody saw Shakespeare, everything was together. Um, and then it starts to separate, and the creation of highbrow culture and highbrow audiences, and we can see it structured in the way theaters are built you know, architecturally as well as, as the fair that's offered and who goes there and separate entrances and all that. Um so again, I think with the mid nineteenth century is that wonderful moment and Mara's other work when she points out that the um that all audience you know and all the um audiences involve children, it was just one more way that society was not segregated as much. Of course it was segregated, you know, racially. But um, there was a mixture of classes in the same way that there was a mixture of generations um, in the theater, and then we moved away from that. And today, of course, we have children's theater and we have adult theater with some middle ground. But we've moved to the more and more separation, um, segregation of, of uh, generations as well as classes. And yeah, I
2: think I think that with audiences, we age got lost a little bit, um, and because we were so focused on the way in which the theater was regendered as being okay for women and, and, you know, and, and the class dynamics. And so age kind of got lost for a while. And it's nice that now we're sort of thinking about that age was another category um, to think about when you think about audiences. And I would also say, I feel like there's been a lot of focus on figures on the 19th century stage. I guess this speaks to gender that embody, the sort of true perfections of innocence, you know, Little Eva, figures like that. And I think we're also now starting to see, or at least I've been trying to start to think about other figures that don't conform to that ideology of innocence on the stage, like Humpty Dumpty, um, figures that are meant to represent youth but are rowdier, um, more transgressive, more interesting. They were there too, but I think... We've been so interested in the ideology of innocence, we don't always look 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 to those other figures that don't sort of match our critical paradigm.
1: I think in art is one place to look for that. And uh, there was a wonderful um, exhibit at the Newark Museum called uh, "Angels and Tomboys" a couple of years ago, and a book published out of it. And one of the things that they point out a lot of artists with whom I'm not familiar, like Lily Martin Spencer, were doing illustrations and drawings in the 1850s in the 1860s of mischievous girls of adventurous girls so at the same time as you had some artists painting you know girls in beautiful white perfect you know the looks we know and the romanticized look there were also girls swinging on fences and girls ice skating girls running through the fields and looking you know strong and independent um so in visual art there's certainly a record to support what Maury was just saying, that there's there's a contradictory... You know, everything goes... Pendulums always swing both ways at the same time. And uh, there was always, I think, girls who were independent and and matched this.
0: Actually, Fran, this is something you captured pretty well in your case study of the Marsh troop. Specifically, I'm thinking of your analysis of Mary Marsh as the consummate innocent child and Louise Arnaud, who played a variety of other, often more masculine roles.
1: Well, it's it's one of my... um, uh, I think pet theory is that playing the male roles you know spending a lot of her childhood you know in pants with swords you know giving orders on stage is part of what empowered her as a as a young woman you know in an age when many women didn't have rights when many women you know were were ensconced at home being protected you know by the culture of womanhood that she had this incredible independence and agency and you know, may, was it the training or was it part of that the role of that? Because um, the other big Breaches performer from the 19th century is um, Charlotte Cushman, who uh, played um, a lot of breeches roles in her youth and went on to be one of the most powerful and famous actresses of the 19th century. Um, and her recent biographers are pretty sure that she, um, you know, was had same-sex sexual preference. And so it was a whole, but she was, she was always masculine-looking and strong, and yet uh, an audiences accepted her. Audiences through her entire career, from eighteen forties, eighteen up to eighteen seventies, I think, um, accepted this woman who never looked like the Victorian ideal of womanhood. She was strong and masculine and tough, and and played male's roles even as an adult. So we thought, and and think and this touches on what Mario was saying about the other scholars, there was this idea that only beautiful, you know, um, thin, you know, only one ideal of womanhood would be celebrated, and yet there was this parallel career, who, which was sort of pushed aside by a lot of 20th century scholars because it didn't fit who we thought the Victorians were celebrating. In fact, there was an existent, Major, major
0: career that contradicted our theories. Mara, when when you were talking about the sort of, um, I guess the I, Grand Duke's Opera House is the, is the best uh, term I can have to embrace it. Did that seemed like an all male space, and I, I wonder if there's if there's room for for female performers in those kinds of spaces.
2: That's a really good question. Um, the cool thing about that group was that the boys put it together themselves, right the newsboys and every and they did everything they wrote the shows, they put up the scenery, they charged the money, right They were the audience and the performers and 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 everything. I haven't found an example of a a- you know a theater company set up to earn money that was all girls um run in the same way, although of course. You know, there was a lot of blurring of the line between amateur theatricals and and public theatricals, and there was a lo- there were many. And there are many more examples of girls running private theatricals of the kind we see in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, right within the privacy of the home. But I haven't found any yet of an all girls professional theater company run by girls. That would be amazing.
0: Well, it just got me thinking about performance as play, and, you know, this touches on some of my own work with, with Buffalo Bills Wild West and kids playing cowboys and Indians. And, and I just thought of all the ways that, that theater or, or this kind of performance was a form of children's play uh, in the 19th century and how that could, you know, add to this discussion. Um,
2: I think that's a really interesting question, um, especially since, you know, Ann Vardy's book, which was one of the first books, book-length studies of children in theater in the 19th century, I think its subtitle was All Work, No Play. Right. <laughs> and you could tell she was trying to, I think a lot of us who are concerned, and I certainly count Shauna and um, Diane Coldclaw, all who are concerned that children are not, people sometimes fail to recognize that children are... Child actors are professional performers, and it's a form of labor, right? And during the 19th century, often a way to ignore or deny that was to say, oh, the children on stage, it's just like play for them. They love to play, you know? You couldn't keep them off the stage. And this can obscure the the sense in which it, it was a form of labor and a really difficult form of labor. So to sort of correct for that, we sometimes want to say, no, it wasn't play. It was work. Um, it was labor, and I think, I agree with you, though, I think we should watch that tendency, because I think there's no doubt that there were elements of great pleasure um, and play in, in, in performativity, so we, again, it's like a balancing act, right, of not, trying not to go too far one way or the other.
1: I don't know if any of you, either of you have um, heard any of the work by Heather Fitzsimmons Fry on at-home theatricals. Um, but that's what she's working on and writing about is the at-home theatricals in England in the Victorian era and how the girls got to, um, in, you know, control these situations, how they not only have tremendous fun, but they exercised agency. It got them to be, be able to give them permission to act in a way that was um, strong and courageous and would have been outside their normal uh, repertoire of accepted behaviors, um, and very fascinating work about how those amateur works are very, very popular and how they're they're affecting the performers themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. And they also they also play a big role in um, the creation of children's theater as the a standalone kind of phenomenon. This is something I've worked on with Peter Pan, right? And one of the things that I think is really great about looking at those private theatricals and performances is the ways in which they do draw our attention to some of the assumptions we make about children in the audience, right? Because uh, a lot of the early work that characterized adult interest in child performers in this period as kind of erotically charged and creepy and horrifying sort of takes for granted that that's that's the kind of response only an adult would have to watching people on stage, a kind of erotic excitement, voyeurism, and all that. And one funny thing we can see when we look at private theatricals is that Children, too, derive scopophilic pleasure from watching performers. So there's a wonderful example of Ernest Shepard, the guy who did Winnie the Pooh,
0: who illustrated
2: Winnie the Pooh, because he describes... Witnessing home theatricals, and he basically says, "Oh, you know, it, it, at a children's party when he was a child, and the performers were children, and he—it's this incredibly erotically charged description of how much he had a crush on a little girl when he was a little boy, and it's—it's extremely funny in terms of kind of upending our sense that." It was only adults who got an erotic charge out of watching performances, which I think is sort of due to our own acceptance of the ideology of innocence, that that is not something we think about very often.
0: I think that's right. Well, as we wrap up, maybe you could both talk a little bit about uh, work you're doing now or work you're going to be doing in the future in this field. Uh, Shauna, maybe you'd like to begin. Um, as to
1: myself, I'm thinking of moving into the 20th century, um, now I'm working on the concept of child emancipation, uh, legal emancipation, where a child actually is legally separated from childhood, um, which, which is employed by child actors quite a bit in the 20th century, um, and, and we just still have never decided if child actors should be children or adults. I mean, it's, from day one, it's been a, a, a quandary for society.
2: That sounds so cool. I'm so glad you're working on that because I love the idea of thinking about how, you know, we often think about the Victorians as kind of confused, like how could they at once celebrate the innocent, pure child enshrined in the home and at the same time slunk down their money to be child workers on the stage? And I feel like we do the same thing, right? We're just yep. the same, you know? There's a funny, that's really interesting. And in fact, my own work, too, is sort of moving towards the 20th century because I've been working on children in musicals and contemporary musicals. Um, so I'm, I've got a piece coming out about Annie and Newsies um, and the representation of childhood in those shows. And I just love, I, I love being able to work on the stuff I studied as a performer when I was little. So it's kind of nice. I feel like I'm coming full circle.
1: Where's the article going to be?
2: It's, uh, there's a new book coming out on childhood and musical theater, um, so it's going to be in that book. Um, and
0: yeah, I'm excited, right? I'm excited too. Mara and Shauna, I want to thank you both for joining us. And that just about wraps things up for us. This is Martin Woodside, and you've been listening to a conversation with Mara Gubar and Shauna Bay on childhood history and critique the Society for the History of Children and Youth, recorded in January of 2016.